<gasps> Hello, Joe! Are you trying to come up and visit while I do a podcast? It's for okay, bye! Hello and welcome to the Magic Wings Clubhouse, a podcast where two best friends get together every other week and recap the Italian Magical Girl series, Wings Club. I'm Brendan, Fairy of the Surging Sea. And I'm Tess, Fairy of the Rolling Stones. Today, we are watching Fate the Wings Saga, Season 1, Episode 5, Wither into the Truth. This episode was released, along with the rest of the season, on January 22nd, 2021. The episode was directed by Stephen Wolfenden, the teleplay was written by Victoria Botta, and the story was written by Sarah Hooper. Uh, if For those who don't know the difference, which included myself until I looked this up, the story comprises the basic narrative, idea, theme, or outline, indicating character development and action, while the teleplay consists of individual scenes and full dialogue or monologue, including narration and connection, and camera setups as needed. This episode title is from the poem The Coming of Wisdom with Time by William Butler Yeats. The full quote being, Though leaves are many, the root is one. Through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. I don't know how they're going to wrap up this show in one episode. (laughs) I mean, I can tell you that on a, it's going to wrap up on a cliffhanger for season two. It's not a cliffhanger. It's a sequel hook. <laughs> Which, by the way, according to most TV writers, you shouldn't do because you never know if you're going to get another season. I'd only do it if you absolutely know that the next season is in the bag. Yeah. I think it was the writers for Star Trek who said that. Anyhow. We begin with an exterior shot of Alfea, which, hey, at least they keep that from the cartoon. (laughs) And uh, Beatrix screaming crying as Dowling probes her mind. As you Uh, do. Silva observing the interrogation. Uh, Apparently, though, this is just Beatrix kind of not playing possum, but um, I don't know what I can't draw the I can't remember what animal acts like it's already injured. Uh, she's only acting like she's being tortured, though, because all Dowling is doing is just kind of breaking through any walls Beatrix is trying to throw up. And Ugh. it's a it's a painless process. But Beatrix points out that if she the more she screams and acts hysterical, the more people are going to hear that and think that uh, Dowling is actually torturing her. But to her credit. Dowling doesn't back down. She just keeps throwing questions out while Beatrix taunts her. Um, Beatrix does get one over, though, when she reminds Dowling that it doesn't matter if she's actually being tortured. All that matters is that other people think she is. Right. So uh, Dowling and Silva leave Beatrix's holding room, and it looks like they set this up in the East Wing. And she's being guarded by some specialists. Bloom is doing her worst Mission Impossible nearby and taking notes (laughs) 
To her credit, at least she's making, oh no, she's making digital notes. Terrible idea. You need to use pen and paper for this sort of thing. Harder to track. And she's caught by Dane. <laughs> but uh, he's still Team Beatrix. So he tells Bloom that he can help her to talk to Beatrix. Uh, he tells her that uh, he's on guard rotation. Still, because nobody has cataloged this conflict of interest. And that he'll be on shift tomorrow night. And uh, that is the transition to the title cards. Time to cut to training because, well, burned ones are here and we need to make sure that everyone knows what the fuss is going on. They do fake us out pretty good, though. Oh, yeah. Bloom and Sky are in the middle of a hedge maze because every good school needs to have a hedge maze. They're great for chase scenes. And a burned one is just shrieking in the distance. Sky urges Bloom to act, and when a burned one jumps down to attack, she shoots a gout of fire? Yeah. What's a gout? She flamethrowers. Is that what a gout is? Yes. Okay. She shoots a gout of fire that doesn't seem to do much more than make it angry. It yep. jumps, claws extended, and then collapses into a little crystal that I got a pier one in the dirt. And they're apparently training dummies of a sort. And Bloom and Sky haven't been able to defeat one yet. Also, my first note, um, aside from this isn't regular prison, this is advanced prison, <laughs> is, oh good, a daytime burned one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm kind of disappointed that the burned ones are mostly CGI, but I understand why. Like, I feel like practical effects would be, like, they don't have that skeletal nature that they would need to be a burned one. It's, uh, they look way better when they're, we get the still shots and there's an actual suit. I understand that people don't want it to look like Power Rangers, but make it look like Power Rangers. However, it does make sense that they look a little wrong in the daytime, because currently they are dummies. Eh, True. Bloom picks up the crystal that was the fake burned one, and then she notices that Sky has a very tiny cut on his cheek. And uh, she uses her powers in a really creative way to cauterize the wound and heal it. Bloom does have healing powers in the cartoon, but they don't come up very often. Um, I thought it was really neat to see them brought up here. Bloom complains that they haven't been explicitly told how to fight a burned one, and that they've been able to ace every other exercise presented to them. The camera pans around the training yard and shows various groups of adult specialists sparring with the students, while fairies act as support using their magic. I'd, I'd guess that these uh, adult specialists are the rest of the faculty for at least this half of the school. Sky mentions that this year's exercises are much more like proper war games than last year's, probably because there's an active threat going on. And Bloom mutters a comment about how this is very in character for the faculty since they were all soldiers before. Sky asks Harvey for a hint, but he only says that every failure brings them closer to success and encourages patience. Very, um, martial arts movie style. Uh, this is where we learn that every burned one has a core called a cinder, and 
with time and with training, Bloom could learn to actively burn these cores out. Uh, but until then, they need to learn to trust each other. Fairies have to trust their specialists to hold off an opponent while they channel precision magic, and specialists need to trust their fairy to actually finish the job. Bloom and Sky walk off, and Sky notes that she's been acting weird lately. Bloom doesn't like that the professor has been watching her like a hawk ever since her trip with Beatrix, and is afraid they think she's some kind of henchwoman. And then Sky asks if Bloom is going to help Beatrix steal the Eiffel Tower, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, but Bloom is in no mood to joke around and asks to run the simulation again. I feel like the reason that they're teaching them this way is because the burned ones are, for all intents and purposes, unpredictable. And if you treat every single burned one attack the exact same, you are going to die. The camera continues following the rest of the teachers. And also Aisha and Muse are here. Aisha is here as admin support and notes that this will be Bloom and Sky's fifth attempt as she, Dowling, and Musa observe the various other matches. According to Musa, Sky is winded and Bloom is frustrated, but neither of them are actually fatigued. Probably because this last one was just them standing back to back, Bloom blasted some fire, and then it was over. Musa then says it feels invasive to read all these people on Dowling's order and asks if she can use her powers against a foe instead. Dowling comments that not all types of magic are good for direct combat and that support roles are just as important. Since Musa can monitor for fragile mental states or potential espionage. Aisha brings up Beatrix as an example. And Musa asks if Beatrix has confessed. But Dowling is clearly uncomfortable and ignores that question and says, keep focused as we continue our rounds. Uh, Tara takes a break on the sidelines and Kat, our recurring female specialist friend, compliments a maneuver she used to yank someone to the floor with a vine. Riven uh, comes up as Kat leaves and he genuinely compliments Tara for being a force on the battlefield and she returns the courtesy, saying that he's doing pretty good too, but he rejects her and complains about how he's doing, saying he should probably switch to support. Tara tries to console him by saying it's been a really weird week for everybody in general, and she understands how the Beatrix situation must be hard on him in particular. Riven can't answer Tara, because Dane is walking by and he takes the chance to, uh, mock Riven for doing poorly, uh, because Riven has succeeded in just creating another him, and Dane is a monster now. Just a total jackass. Yeah, this has been a weird week. Riven does acknowledge this, though, and he also tells Tara that Dane is, for some reason, still loyal to Beatrix. He doesn't understand why, though, because Riven can only think of doing things for somebody because you want to sleep with them. And he doubts that's the case, since Dane doesn't seem interested in women. But two points. One, sexuality is fluid. Two, maybe it's not because he wants to sleep with Beatrix, but it's because Riven and Beatrix have been screwing with Dane's head for the last month. So Dane has some weird complexes built up around them both. 
Uh, and then Riven kind of like awkwardly excuses himself from this conversation because he doesn't really understand what's going on anymore. Tara gives him a look like, I feel kind of sorry for you, but I still hate you. <laughs> Tara's Tara's expression is very much like, well, you made your own mess, now lay in it. Sucks for you. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm a nice person and have empathy for you, but I recognize that this situation is fundamentally your own fault. <laughs> In the school hall, we cut to the school hallways, and Sky catches up to Silva and points out that it's incredibly unsubtle to pair Sky and Bloom up for these exercises. Silva tries reasoning that Bloom is a powerful fairy and Sky is a skilled specialist, so nobody really questions it. When asked for an update on his espionage, Sky says that even though Bloom hasn't explicitly said anything about her and Beatrix's trip, he's pretty sure Bloom isn't an evil mastermind, and he's more convinced of that the more time he spends with her. I ended that weird, but I'm gonna just keep going. Mm -hmm. Sky then has a moment when he realizes the position he's in. With Stella gone... Riven a complete mess, and the person he's spending all of his time with is someone he's spying on. Silva reassures Sky that what he's doing is important and for the sake of protecting the other world, and even if it's lonely, there is honor in that act. Sky nods tensely and leaves, and Silva has a brief flashback to a conversation he had with Sky's father, Andreas. So they're doing a little bit of a spar, and Silva gets knocked on his back, and Andreas, like, ribs him about pulling his weight, and says that Sky would probably be more useful, even if he is an infant. And Silva uh, asks exactly when the last time Andreas saw Sky was, which really seems to strike a, like, it, it, um... What's it? What is it? It's not strikes a note. It hits a nerve. nerve. Thank you. That seems to really hit a nerve with Andreas. So he doesn't respond and he just uh, checks on Harvey, who is dissecting a burned one. Since at this point, they don't actually know a lot about them. They are swiftly joined by Rosalind, who appears in her first uh, speaking flashback. Er, No, she did... She appears in her merge for her first major role. Yeah, her first uh, substantial role in a flashback. And uh, congratulates all three of them, because Dowling is here too. Uh, <clears throat> she congratulates them on a new record of two minutes and 15 seconds. But recommends that the next time they fight a burned one, they try to get it in under two minutes. Oh, and uh, real quick, uh, Papa Sky does just do a full-on loogie spit on the burned one. Yeah, he contaminates the corpse because uh, learning is for nerds, I guess. Why learn when you can just kill? Yeah, Sky's dad doesn't seem like that great of a person. We learn that a little later, too. (laughs) So we come back from this flashback to the three professors reviewing the footage from the day's training and note that none of the students could actually defeat one of these simulations and most of them just straight up surrendered and gave up silva argues exact that this is exactly why they're training them 
But further discussion is interrupted when Marco, you know, hot Marco, badass Marco, most powerful graduate in a long time, uh, busts into the room and he's been clawed by one of the burned ones. Not hot Marco. He is fairly hot. He is really attractive. So he explains that he and his partner were tracking a burned one that was really close to the school. But after they killed it, they were ambushed by another one and Marco got scratched. Harvey runs to get some Zan back to treat him. And Marco is pretty confused since they were taught that burned ones are solitary hunters. Dowling confirms that they they usually are. But sometimes they do hunt in groups. It, it's extremely rare, but it's known to happen. Silva wants to alert the Solarian army, because if they're hunting in packs, that means something big is about to happen. But Marco reports that not only have the Solarians gone completely radio silent, they've actively pulled their troops out of the battalion. Um, there is some dancing around the next point of discussion, but it's implied that this is Luna retaliating for being dissatisfied with Stella's training, and that without the support of the national military, Alfea is basically screwed. We're now in the main suite with the main girls, or at least some of the main girls. Tara Four is out of five. busy. Yeah, that ain't, that ain't bad. That's a passing grade. Tara <laughs> is busy loading up Stella's old room with plants because it bothers her that the room is empty. To be fair, an empty room can be kind of creepy. She and Musa have a conversation about Sam and Musa's relationship, with Musa now hiding her phone when Sam texts out of fourth habit, which Tara is fine with since she doesn't want to accidentally see a sex from her own brother. I mean, fair. Musa teases Tara and asks- <laughs> I'm gonna be- I'm gonna live with you, Musa. If I looked over and he texted you and there was a dick pic on your screen, I might have to self-immolate. <laughs> I just I just wandered into Bloom's room and asked her to set me on fire. I would I would self-combust myself. I don't know how I'd do it, but I would light myself. I have plant powers, but I would find a way to set myself on fire. Musa teases Tara and asks if she thinks Musa just listens to grunge, does homework, and sexts Sam. It's funny that they say Musa listens to grunge because the one thing we heard from like, the one thing we heard from was her Was sad indie pop? Was sad indie pop, yeah. <laughs> Where's the Nirvana? This show is sad indie pop, the musical. <laughs> Look, me, I, I'm just saying Yuza should be listening to Heart Shaped Box, that's all. <laughs> the topic turns back to Stella, since it's been a week since she left. But they have had next to no contact with her, which is clearly upsetting Tara, which, okay, going back to the training, they've been doing this for a week. Of course no one's gonna beat them in a week. I don't know. I think it's one of those things where they they don't realize how underprepared the students are for practical stuff until they actually ask them to do the practical stuff. Wait, they're children and they're not beating these immediately? What the hell? More like, what do you mean we thrust you into a job market unprepared and now you can't get a job? We taught you how to get a job. 
in theory, never in practice, but we taught you the steps to getting a job. <laughs> Miyosa asks if Tara would feel better if she insulted her. And the sad thing is, it seems like Tara does miss Stella, despite how Stella treated her. And this scene just had me just going, oh no! Tara and Stella have a weird relationship. (laughs) We'll see it more later, but it's weird. I kind of love it, though. (laughs) What is this ship dynamic? Sundere? I guess? (laughs) Complex. Negging? Anyway, they're interrupted by the sound of a crash from Stella's room, and it turns out that a plant fell over. So, I don't know, maybe maybe uh, Tara overloaded this one dresser and one just fell off? Or it was Who too knows? close to the edge or something. Don't push me, as I'm close to the edge. I'm sorry. Did Musa leave her iPod playing? What was that? <laughs> Anyway, after the uh, interruption by the falling plant, Aisha checks on Bloom, who's been at her desk and obsessively checking her phone the entire scene, and reassures Bloom that if there's anything there want- she wants to talk about, about what happened, she wouldn't report anything to Dowling. Bloom lies through her teeth about wanting to focus on school, and as soon as Dane texts her to let her know his shift is starting... Bloom says something important came up and just dips, getting a call from her parents while she does and ignoring it. I wonder if Dowling has heard anything from her parents and how much Dowling is telling them. It seems like Dowling would be good at tap dancing around the magic part. Since she was just she was just framing it as Bloom having some like social trouble, which isn't wrong. Dowling seems like she's Dowling seems like she's really good at lying by omission. In some good directing, this is juxtaposed with Aisha telling Musa and Tara that she's worried about Bloom, who's gone from being seemingly obsessed with her past to acting like she's over it. Like, full stop over it. Like they're supposed to believe that. And she noted that Bloom was texting Dane, who Tara notes is firmly on Beatrix's side, according to Riven. Fun fact, Dane is firmly on Beatrix's side. It keep They keep reiterating this throughout the episode, but at the same time, it's they, they only ever do it when it's a character who does not already know this. Wait, you mean Dane's on Beatrix's side? What? This, uh, I, I have a, I have a more firm complaint about this fact later, but again, this feels like a a side effect of these episodes being very dense and the series being so short. Yeah. Anyhow, Bloom reaches the East Wing, and Dane has knocked out the other guard using an unspecified sedative. The man is dead. (laughs) Dane tapped on his shoulder and just blew sleeping powder in his face. Hey, Peter, what's up? Pockets in! <laughs> so he lets Bloom know that Beatrix is waiting for her and that the other guard is going to be out for long enough. 
So Bloom enters Beatrix's cell room, and when she asks Beatrix if Beatrix killed Callum, Beatrix immediately confesses. Okay, Bloom, just real quick, now you know you are talking to a murderer. (laughs) Uh, The answer that she gives is that Callum was on her side, which makes the situation more complicated than what she calls the simplified version the faculty is presenting of evil Beatrix killed hapless assistant. But really, that's all the information they have because Beatrix has not spilled on any of her motivation. But at the same time, she's trying to manipulate Bloom right now, so I recognize the fact that this is probably just more manipulation tactics. Bloom is at least smart enough to point out that the faculty not telling her the whole truth doesn't mean that Beatrix is, and that she wants to find out what really happened to Asterdell. Problem is, Rosalind is apparently the only person who can give her this information, even though there are three other people who were there that Bloom knows and has access to at most hours of the day. But Bloom also doesn't trust any of them, which I think is kind of funny because I get not trusting Dowling, but what have Silva and Harvey ever done to her? They're men, Brendan. I mean, okay, that's fair, but at the same time... (laughs) Uh, Beatrix Slip tells Bloom that Dane is going to give her a key when Bloom leaves. And this key is a, it's like a fairy battery that Bloom can charge at the stone circle. And then Beatrix can use that stored power to break free. And uh, Beatrix then tells Bloom not to trust her, the other winks, or the faculty, and to put all of her trust in Rosalind instead, which isn't culty at all. Oh, no, no, no. Don't trust me. Trust this other person that I'm telling you to trust. I'm sorry? No, trust our fearless leader. (laughs) When Bloom leaves, she actually asks Dane why he's still Team Beatrix. And he gives a really sad answer that Beatrix was the only person who didn't make him feel bad for being different. Which, okay. Here's the thing, though. This is another point where I would have loved to see more just Beatrix and Dane interacting. Without Riven there. Like, here's the that thing, though. It feels like a kind of uh, expanded motivation thing, you know? Yeah. But here's the thing, though. Beatrix is the only person who didn't make him feel bad for being different. So now you are a douchebag? Well, I think that's also because he was trying to do anything he could to fit in with Beatrix and Riven. And now he's actually just kind of become this way. It is kind of funny, though, because in a later scene, when, um, when Dane is just the douchebag in the cafeteria, but he's also wearing a hoodie and a polo that's buttoned up right to the top, like, it's He's trying. It's just really funny to me, and I don't know why. So, Bloom agrees that Beatrix is the only one who's given her any answers, but admits that she's not sure how far she's willing to go to get there, or how far she's willing to go to get more, because previously she scared herself with how far she was willing to go. Uh, But the next morning, she seems to have made up her mind, 
because she takes the key that Dane gave her and heads off to the stone circle and wakes up Aisha while she does so. Aisha doesn't do that groggy thing of what year is it? Who am I? What are you? She's like, oh no, Bloom is doing a thing. Yeah, her just like her eyes snap open. Alright, so there's a brief side scene here in the training yard where they just throw a bone to the cartoon watchers by having a Riven Musa moment. The big takeaway from this interaction is that we get a more blatant view of Riven's self-loathing and teen angst when he says Alfia, quote, only cares about what they want you to be, end quote. Musa probably doesn't even need to read Riven, but she does pick up that he really hates being at the school, and he says, get out of my head. Sam walks by as Riven storms away, and Musa asks Sam if he wants to go to the suite with her. This is pretty shocking, because they are very much about to do a sex in Sela's vacant room. Musa even getting down to her bra, which, by the way, lovely figure. Can I be 100% with you? Uh, during this scene, I remembered the show was rated TVMA. <laughs> and I was like, are they about to, are they about to show some titties? Are they about to actively smang? But no, a plant falls off a shelf and shatters into a thousand pieces. And Sam, hilariously, gets freaked out about gro- Grosts? <laughs> oh no, it's a gross ghost. A ghost. Ain't that a Scooby-Doo villain? The gross ghost. I wouldn't be surprised. Um... They are interrupted when a plant falls off a shelf for no reason and shatters and Sam hilariously gets freaked out about ghosts. He's like a masculine and very real fear of ghosts. Unfortunately, the mo- the the moaner is gone. <laughs> You're not wrong. The bone the boner is dead, the moaner is gone. And Musa puts her sweater back on and stamp and Sam leaves. As she sits on Stella's bed, she speaks up and tells Stella she can come out. And Stella decloaks because now she can go invisible like the fucking predator. She's been hiding out in the suite for a few days and Musa asks if she wants to talk. She's a, she's a Sue Storm now. It's fine. <laughs> Just like... She, she, Okay, so yeah, the previous plant falling, that was Stella too. She's just like, I don't want to see you two idiots smang in front of me. Meh. I was sleeping in that bed a week ago. Please don't. <laughs> you say you're going to wash the sheets, but I don't know if I trust you. And, ha- and no, mu- no matter, matter how much washing, we'll get that out. Uh, in the stone circle, Bloom... Uh, Finds the key. Dane slipped her a book, and the key is in the book. It's not even hollowed out. It's just in between the pages. Yeah, that's the weird part. I was thinking it was going to be one of those hollow book deals. It's just a fat bookmark. That that textbook is going to be returned damaged. (laughs) Bloom puts this key amulet. Uh, in the center of the stone circle on that little uh, plinth that's there that the vessel usually is, but it's not here this time. Uh, 
Sky startles her. And there's a great bit where he asks her what she has there. And she goes, it's called a book. And I'm shocked you've never seen one before. (laughs) So after a little bit more of ban, a little bit more banter, Sky gets real and tells Bloom that Silva ordered him to spy on her. Bloom does get angry, but to her credit, she gets mad at Silva for taking advantage of their chemistry, not at Sky for actually spying, which it's nice. Sky does find the key, but doesn't know what it is. Uh, he just tells her that he's on her side, and she responds by saying she doesn't know if she can trust him yet, but she can at least fill him in. So she tells him about Astrodell. <laughs> Thank you for using the stupid joke that I cha- that I made and had to change in the last episode as the heading for this <laughs> for this paragraph. You're welcome. So the previous scene is juxtaposed with a pair of simultaneous scenes dealing with Queen Luna. Stella tells Musa that she's been gone for a few I'm days. I'm sorry, I just realized I used juxtaposed a lot in this outline. Cinematic parallels, literally. And the real reason Luna pulled her troops is because she has them searching for Stella. Stella assumes the reason that Althea hasn't been searched yet is because doing so would be Luna acknowledging that she has lost control of the situation. Luna has always been dead set on Stella being powerful. So when positive emotion didn't give her the right results she wanted, she turned to negative emotion. And that's the reason Stella's magic is damaged. Ricky was genuinely her best friend, but Stella lost control. And it was more convenient for Luna that Stella did it on purpose because at least she wouldn't seem weak. And I am getting goosebumps just reading this. Yeah, it's fucked up. We were supposed to be a fun podcast about, about a fun children's show about fairies and magic. Here we have childhood trauma. By the way, <laughs> trigger warning. Trigger warning. Parental emotional abuse. It comes back again, and it's probably going to keep coming up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I like this show, though. It's a Riverdale, so they have to put in stuff like this. It gives more depth. Although it is cheap depth, it is depth. I'd argue that frank depictions of emotional abuse aren't that cheap. Mostly because we're finally getting around to talking about this sort of thing. But anyway, let's continue with the summary. Okay, yeah, fair. Um, Musa, rightfully so, points out how up that is and Stella reveals that she came back because the second she got home the abuse started again Musa tries pointing out that everyone would be okay with Stella being there if they knew the circumstances and also because Musa knows how much everyone misses her but sadly Stella is so emotionally traumatized that she thinks the others are too judgmental to accept her uh, the paired scene is Dowling asking Luna for help, and Luna has shown up via hologram to be passive-aggressive about Dowling's teaching methods. 
Dowling finally puts her foot down about how badly Luna screwed up Stella's powers, and Luna responds by actively leaving Althea to fend for itself. I'll make a better fairy school with blackjack and hookers. <laughs> with blackjack and trauma. You know what? Forget the fairy school. Just trauma. Let's traumatize some, <laughs> let's traumatize some kids. <laughs> Uh, we go to the dining hall, and uh, Dane is lighting up a joint in the middle of the courtyard, which is super smart. And uh, Tara confronts him about his attitude. And then Dane acts like Tara did something to him by being upset at how Dane treated her. I feel like at this point, like Beatrix has done something to Dane to brainwash him. Like, not even, like, magic, like, not even, like, talking to him. Like, no, magic brainwash. I feel like there might be an element of that involved, but I have no clue. It'll genuinely never be revealed. Dane could just be emotionally damaged enough to have latched onto her. Ugh. Oh, no. This is a show about children with emotional damage. Dane tries to leave, but Tara uses a vine to tie him to his chair and lets him know that he's going to be staying there until he talks about what he's been plotting with Bloom. Uh, Dane tries to stay defiant and take a hit off of his joint, and then Aisha puts it out with a with a jet of water and gives him an ultimatum. He talks, or they get the faculty involved. My favorite line from this was, um, that's a lot of water you have here. It'd be a shame if there was an accident. Messy. Are they... Are- are they just gonna make Dane piss himself? Well, I think the I think they were just gonna leave him there until he did if he didn't talk. Back in the Stone Circle, Sky is having a hard time believing what supposedly happened at Asterdell, since he doesn't believe Silva capable of what he supposedly did. Bloom doesn't think the faculty are evil, but she knows that they're ultimately protecting themselves, and she won't be able to get the full truth from them. It's important to note that she has made her mind up on this, and she has never attempted to get the full truth. Yeah, yeah. Sky empathizes with her about their family situations, and Bloom offers him a drink from her water bottle. They share a vulnerable moment where Sky opens up about how hard it is to live up to an idealized version of his father's legacy, and that he feels Silva only takes care of him out of a sense of duty rather than an emotional attachment. He tells Bloom he's a fixer because, in his mind, he has to be, since when he fixes other people's problems, he doesn't have to think about his own. Okay, okay, this wig is glued down. Don't pull that hard, okay? Do you want to f***ing scalp me? What? They're coming for my wig with this scene. Stab me next time, it'll hurt less. <laughs> Sky gives the somewhat cliche but ultimately true point that everyone has emotional damage of some kind. And then they do a very closed mouth kiss to some emotional indie pop ballad. I feel like the camera was not supposed to be that close zoomed in on the most obvious stage kiss I've seen in my life. I can see your pores, Mary. The battery finishes charging, and Skye points out that Bloom never told him what it does, and asks if she doesn't trust him. 
She does say that she... She says that she does trust him, but also knows that he'd try to stop her if she told him. Sky falters a bit, and Bloom admits that she slipped him a sedative that Dane gave her, and apologizes as he passes out on the ground, almost hits his head on a rock as she goes to free Beatrix. He passes out face down. Ow! He's gonna wake- if he didn't break his nose on that fall, I'm gonna be shocked. (laughs) That cut that Bloom healed up? Yeah, that reopened. He probably scratched himself with his sword. I forgot I titled that Bloom Nearly Snaps. So we go from this to the greenhouse where Harvey is dealing with Marco's uh, wound, with Marco's burned one scratch. and With Marco's polio. (sighs) I am so sorry. (laughs) Uh, There's some banter between them and Silva, who is also here. Marco brings up Skye because he heard how Silva nearly died. And Sky had a hand in keeping that from happening. Silva praises Sky's loyalty and says that it reminds him of Andreas. And then Marco asks if Sky also inherited Andreas's bloodlust, which is a shocking word to hear. Yipes! And Silva reassures Marco that Sky was carefully trained, and that implies Sky might actually have some violence issues. But here's the thing. Silva also says that Skye is his own man. No the fuck he isn't. No, he's actively not. He, he's, he, Skye doesn't make his own decisions. He just listens to what Silva tells him to do. And he is actively always comparing himself to his dad. So like, I think this is that dramatic parental irony where you think you know your child and you actually don't. You know them as they used to be, not as they currently are. Anyway, uh, they're cut off when Marco's phone starts buzzing with a call from his specialist partner, Nora. And he assumes that this means that she and the battalion destroyed the burned one that injured him, and he's going to be fine. So he answers the call as a FaceTime, which is weird. But they do this (laughs) because the other end of the line is a found footage horror movie. This is Cloverfield. This is the Blair Witch. And then the Blair Witch just shows up. Yeah. (laughs) It's nor. It's like a. (laughs) It's like an up the nose shot of Nora, who's like covered in blood and crying, because apparently the entire battalion has been slaughtered and Nora's leg is broken. And of course, when she adjusts the (laughs) the angle on the camera, the burned one is right behind her. We're laughing. Because this is absurd. We're also (laughs) completely realizing that this is a very intense scene where someone's death is literally almost caught on tape. Like, (laughs) I'm laughing because it it is so tonally jarring. Because it's literally a found footage horror movie for about about 30 seconds. And then it just goes back to normal. Hey, Nora, what's up? Everyone's dead! For more, see The Blair Witch Project, 1990 whenever. Also known as Four Dogs wander around the woods in Maryland and scream at each other. And then one of them cries. <laughs> um, so uh, Nora gets up, even though her leg is broken, and starts running, which... Okay, that detail is like a good horror movie detail. 
they tell her to run for the barrier, and I guess she knows where that is because she starts running in a direction. Well, here it says, I think she said she thinks her leg is broken, and this could just be adrenaline at this point because she's about to die. Um, she, she trips or she gets knocked down and the phone fries from her hands so we don't actively see her die, but we hear her die. So, uh, rest in pieces, Nora. See at the crossroads. Rest in literal pieces, because I think you got torn limb from limb. Um. Oh, no, Ra. Oh, <laughs> uh, the video call is still running, by the way, which, effectively creepy. I think what would have been, like, a not cooler, but, like, a nice detail is if one of the burned ones did step on it and it broke it and end the call. Yeah, that would have been a nice way to end this. Uh, but the important thing is, it does see not one burned one or two, but about six. Yipes. I counted seven. Later, they'll say there's five, maybe six. So I might have counted wrong. Basically, there's several. Yeah, there's a full pack of them, and they're all running in the direction of Alfia. We're in trouble. <laughs> I'm in danger. <laughs> this is the last, second to last episode. <laughs> oh, how are they going to wrap this up in an hour? Uh, <laughs> we're done with that scene. That, that, that scene's done. I am running out of ways to change scenes. Bloom sneaks up on the East Wing, but she's caught by Tara and Aisha, who basically ask what her problem is. Bloom once again uses the fact that she's been lied to as a justification and that Tara and Aisha doesn't know what she does. Apparently, Dane also spilled the beans about Astrodel, which he probably heard from Beatrix, and Tara very reasonably points out that Beatrix is a murderer and a liar. Who's probably lying about Astrodel too. And Bloom immediately gives up on her friends because Tara has a parent involved, and Aisha is, quote, Dowling's little helper, so she couldn't possibly convince them. Way to be ungrateful, Bloom. We've been helping you this entire fing show! Aisha rightfully throws back that she's been spying on Dowling for Bloom. For weeks, and all she's seen is evidence that the faculty is trying their best to keep them safe. Bloom hits the ball back and says that they are destructive and maybe dangerous. Bloom. I'm not going to say, look who gave her mother third degree burns, but I am going to say, how's that house doing, Skippy? Tara even points out that she's sounding pretty unhinged, and Aisha tells Bloom that they haven't let anyone know what she's doing, and they won't if she gives them the key. Important to note that body language acting, Bloom is all wide eyes and jittery. Like a scared deer, but a scared deer that could breathe fire. Yeah, I. to be fair, I'm, I'm like, I'm getting a little bouncy here. I don't want to say I'm ticking, but I am, like, antsy. This show is good at telling you what to feel. It's like a scratch and sniff, but with emotions. Burned. Bloom actually starts summoning her magic. Like, you can see her eyes turn orange, but 
once she sees Tara and Aisha bracing for impact and realizing that, oh, I'm about to burn my friends to death, she hands over the key and before telling them that none of them understand how difficult this is for her. Because you're not telling them stuff. Bloom, this is episode five. You've been on this kick since episode two, okay? They know. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, back, uh, we rejoin Musa and Stella back in the suite with uh, a transition of Aisha texting Musa to let her know that she and Tara are coming back and that Bloom did not go through with it. Stella complains about how uh, everybody is acting like Aisha's in charge and that she just has to watch while the suite falls to pieces. Turns out she's been the one breaking the pots because in her own words, she's not above being a poltergeist to express her opinion. I mean, same. Uh, they hear Tara and Aisha talking in the hallway, so Stella vanishes when the door, when the door opens and the other two girls come in. Uh, Musa uses Sam as an excuse for why she didn't join uh, Tara and Aisha. And there's there's a good bit here where Tara says, at least tell me you didn't do it in our room. <laughs> but uh, Aisha thinks that they should tell Dowling about Bloom since she is genuinely concerned for Bloom's mental health. Stella starts rattling a plant to break it and, and Musa <laughs> immediately outs her to the other girls. <laughs> No, don't you fucking dare. Stella, stop it. Stella has an opinion. <laughs> Damn straight I do. Stella reappears and says that even if Bloom is being all kinds of annoying about it, she deserves to know the truth. And that the choice they need to make is between being right and helping their friend. You're using... Stella, you're using that our word very liberally. Like, Stella is friends with them after being stone cold for the last four episodes and outright bullying Bloom and Tara. This is why we needed more episodes. Because I'm going to just straight out tell you that between this episode and the next episode, Stella becomes friends with the other four girls and it the show acts like she has been for a while. If this was a 12-episode season... We could have seen maybe Stella, like, defrosting and actually getting close to the other girls a little bit in her own way before immediately, you know, like, backing off and realizing she's getting emotionally vulnerable with them. And I think that could have been interesting to see. These last two episodes are where the show starts to fall apart because of how fast it needs to pace things. In her office, Dowling gets a text from Silva telling her to suit up since there's at least five, probably more, burned ones active, and Dowling gets ready to don her best travel coat when Bloom storms in, demanding to see Rosalind. And she also says, I know she's alive, so don't, so don't even bother lying to me. Okay, yeah, fair. Dowling has more pressing concerns and moves to push past Bloom. But when Bloom tells Dowling she's from Asterdell, Dowling looks like she's been slapped in the face with a fish. When Bloom accuses her of taking part in the destruction of the town despite Rosalind's orders, 
Dowling laments that Rosalind is still manipulating people after all these years, and she reveals the true version of what happened at Asterdell. Rosalind was her mentor, the most powerful fairy at Althea, feared, but respected, and Dowling never questioned or doubted her. When told about the burned ones at Asterdell, the faculty mobilized, and Rosalind revealed to them that fairies could combine powers, something none of them knew. She, Harvey, and Dowling created a storm and smote Asterdell with lightning after Rosalind assured the others that the village had been evacuated. They realized what they'd done when they went to ensure the burned ones had been destroyed and found remains of people. Yeah, char- charred human human bodies. Oh no! This is dead. That's not a oh. that's not a burned one kind of that's not a burned one kind of charred corpse. No, that's a that's an actual person charred corpse. Dowling tells Bloom that if she truly is from Asterdell, then there are no words she can say that can right all the damage she caused Bloom. Bloom asks why Rosalind would do that to begin with. And it's apparently because Rosalind knew the others would object if she told them the truth. Uh, Also something I forgot to note here. Dowling explicitly calls Rosalind a zealot who wanted to see every burned one destroyed. Which is why she didn't tell them that there were still people in the village. Do we find out why? Yes. Did Rosalind create the burned ones? No. Dowling admits she has no idea why Rosalind saved Bloom and Beatrix, and when Bloom demands to see her again, Dowling grabs her by the arms and tells her point blank, any answers Rosalind can provide aren't worth unleashing her back onto the world for. She gives Bloom her word that she will help tomorrow, and leaves with Silva to deal with the burned ones. For some reason... Dowling didn't tell Bloom anything about there being active burned ones around. So yeah. Bloom doesn't really un- Yeah, Bloom doesn't understand why Dowling is avoiding this. No, because there's active problems happening. So we have a cut to Beatrix uh, struggling to get her cuffs off and just screeching because she can't. And we also see Sky finally wake up in the stone circle, and I was hoping he would have a nosebleed, but he doesn't. <laughs> uh, it's golden hour now, and Bloom is just sitting on a bench on the grounds of the school that are so, but because it's a manor house, the grounds are so meticulously manicured that it <laughs> looks like she's, like, at a museum. The only bench at Althea. A very fancy bench, too. So she's sitting there contemplating life, the universe, and the meaning of life. And, uh, there's a clink, because Musa has put the key next to her on the bench. And Tara is there with her. Tara tells Bloom that that too many people have been keeping answers from her and that the others have decided they don't want to be those people too. Aisha is conspicuously not here, and when Bloom asks where she is, Tara lets her know that Aisha couldn't get on board with breaking Beatrix out. So she stayed behind in the suite. And that's when Stella uh, uncloaks and tells Bloom that Aisha never cared for her ideas anyway. 
And Bloom just straight up looks like she's her love has come back from the war. Like, yeah, she's got like a bewildered uh, joy and shock expression. Again, we are told that Aisha never liked Stella's ideas. I think the only time we've seen this in practice is when Stella was bullying Bloom into getting her ring back. And Aisha was pointing out that it's Stella's problem, not Bloom's. So I guess that counts. There's a lot in this show that is heard but not seen. Well, you see, you gotta tell them what you're gonna tell them. And then you gotta tell them some more about what you're gonna tell them. And then you gotta tell them. And then you've written an essay for your sixth grade English class. That ends with in conclusion. Alright, so the specialists are gearing up and mobilizing the hunt the burned ones. My favorite thing is that they have army jeeps, but they're not jeeps. And Riven fills Sky in about Terra getting Dane to spill the plan to break Beatrix out. By the way, Sky's here now. He stumbled back in. He looks like he has a hangover from the sedative wearing off. Sky asks where Dane is, but Riven says they have bigger problems and that they've been told to meet Silva at the barrier. At the barrier, the three teachers and a whole bunch of specialists are ready to pass through and start hunting the burned ones. Dowling uses her powers to amplify the sounds in the forest to locate where the burned ones are, but they're only just at the edge of the woods, ready to attack. Aisha walks out of the shadow and asks how many there are, and Dowling scolds her for being so far from the school, and Aisha says that Dowling needs to know what's happening. So this, just to completely be uh, transparent to the listeners... These scenes are kind of cut together weirdly, but uh, we've kind of streamlined them for podcast purposes. So Bloom does break Beatrix out. Uh, and it's kind of interesting how Beatrix uses the key. Uh, I thought she was going to absorb the magic from it, but it's more like she activates it and uses it to like burn the limiters off of her hands. And then just instantly has a full mana bar so she can break free <laughs> on her own. She just she just zaps the door of her cell and apparently picks it with lightning. And the next time we see her in Dowling's office, I think she has a different set of clothes on. So I guess they, I mean, to be fair, she has been in that set of clothes for at least a week. They would have given her new clothes. I can't imagine they'd have kept her in the same thing for that long. That's just inhumane. Then again... Filths be doing war crimes. <laughs> so who knows? So back in Dowling's office, Beatrix tells the other girls that they just need to wait for Dane to get there so they can use him to spring the trap like she did to Callum beforehand. Bloom points out that that's pretty cold. Uh, and Beatrix tells them that Dane will be game to do what she says, and even if because he Because I have him by the balls. Dane is codependent on me, therefore, he will do what I ask, and if he doesn't, we'll, we'll just push him. <laughs> uh, it's Blo worked before. Bloom then asks if Beatrix is game, and Beatrix is visibly confused by this when Stella actually predator decloaks and shoves beatrix through the trap beatrix ragdoll uh, beatrix ragdolls because her hp is gone but the physics engine still needs to do something with the momentum you look back you just see one arm twitching like crazy 
she collapses and she's got that same frostbite makeup on. And uh, Stella reveals her master plan was to free Beatrix only to trap her again, getting what Bloom wants in the process. And you know, this kind of reminds me of something cartoon Stella would do. I mean, it's helping my means, so who cares? But do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is just the right amount of smart and Yeah, cartoon Stella to a T. <laughs> the four Winx girls walk through the Undercroft. Musa and Bloomer in the front, and they have a flashlight. And Stella is in the back with Tara, and she has one of her light balls with her. Stella and Tara actually have a little heart-to-heart about how hard it is for Tara to realize her dad's been keeping things from her. And Stella speaks the hard truth that even the best parents are only doing what they think is best for their children. And at some point, kids have to grow up and start taking care of themselves. Which is super heartbreaking when you consider Stella's circumstances. They're in love now. (laughs) Yeah, again, this is weirdly shippy. Stellara? Stellara? Terella? Solaria? I don't know. To kind of break the weird tension that Stella and Tara have created, Stella goes, oh, by the way, your outfit? And she just looks her up and down and gives her, (laughs) like, a disapproving look, and Tara is happy because she's been insulted by Stella-senpai. But I think Stella's also in on it now. Yeah, this is more of an affectionate, like, teasing sort of thing. Because she heard that from when she broke the pot the first time. It's a good show. (laughs) Uh, They finally reach the door to Rosalind's cell. And the other girls agree that this should be Bloom's moment. So Bloom walks through the door and down the stairs to Rosalind's cell. And we get a peek through. Rosalind opens her eyes and all she says telepathically is, Hello, Bloom. And the episode ends. Bloom of Gardenia, you have come for me. (laughs) Okay, so I feel like we should do our highlights. This episode is so densely packed that the highlights reel is a bit harder to... The highlights reel is a bit harder to put together. But what I would... So, I'm going to compliment Sandwich this episode. What I liked was... I did like the the Bloom and Sky relationship development, it felt very natural. Like, this is what has been building up over these last handful of episodes, and I like that we have the romantic payoff now, before the final episode, but at a point where there is still enough narrative tension that we can resolve some of the romantic tension without it being that big of a deal. Okay. I do not like... Uh, I don't like the way Dane's character has been handled, and I don't like how quickly Stella has become friends with everyone. Both of these things needed more time. Okay, so it's one of those things where 
it feels natural, but we also missed 90% of the transformation. Yeah, you you can't have Zuko join the gang in the middle of season two. <laughs> you just can't. Not without all of the character development that takes place between the between the end of season one and I think it's like the final five or six episodes of season three. Characters can't just decide that can't just decide that they're good guys now. They have to go through some sort of process. And Stella has not. Stella has had one emotionally honest conversation with Musa and has therefore decided that this means they are all five friends now. I also have feelings about the way Dane is treated as a character who is confirmed MLM of some flavor. I don't know. I just don't like it. No, I totally get that. The, um, like the fact that he is, I don't want to say the token homosexual because it's Wings Club and no one is straight here, but the shown, like, the, the only confirmed who, queer character of the cast. Aside from Riven, but Riven is also an ass, so I don't know if he cares. Well, no, that 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 proves the point that the only two queer, explicitly queer characters were shown are second string antagonists, are the social antagonists. It... It's oddly homophobic in a way, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. And I really hope this is one of the things they fix in season two is by giving us more queer characters. And do you know what would be the ideal scenario of this is Tara's cousin Flora comes to town and talks about her girlfriend Tecna. This is my cousin, Flora. She's a big, fat homo, and we love her. <laughs> this is her girlfriend, Tecna. She's a cyber... Um, she just shows up like a Wade from Kim Possible. Call me, beat me if you want to reach me. If you want to page me, it's 2021. The other good moment of this episode was the weird brief 30 second found footage horror film <laughs> that was so tonally jarring that it was funny right is that your highlights reel yes okay my highlights reel um the magical cauterizing the wound that was pretty cool that was fun Tara getting complimented because I also feed on compliments. Okay, something I didn't like was the introduction of Stella's powers. Stella's new power for the sole reason of I don't know if that's something she developed herself or learned from her mom. It almost feels like an explicit developed response to her mother. Like, she was, like, wanting to disappear so badly that she learned how to actively make herself invisible. Oh, learning that Rosalind is an asshole. That was fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's not a pleasant lady. No. And that while going, I didn't mention this because I wanted to mention it now, that going down to see Rosalind, there were sconces on the wall. I wanted them to light up, but I'm happy that there was a sconce. Mm. If only because I'm pretty, didn't like Bloom whack the out of a bad guy with a sconce in season one. Again, this was a very dense episode and not a lot, I don't want to say not a lot stood out for me, but there was a lot to stand out. My notes take up one third of a page. It's yeah. not a lot. So, And that's why your notes took a long time to do. Thank you for joining us at the Magic Wings Clubhouse today. If you like what you heard, you can give us a follow on Twitter where we are at Magic Winks Pod. If you would like to follow me, Brendan, personally, even though I don't really tweet except out-of-context posts for my weekly tabletop game, which are uh, fun to try and puzzle together, if I do say so myself, uh, you can find me at Sonata Waves, S-O-N-A-T-A-W-A-V-E-S. You can email us at magicwingsclubhouse at gmail.com. That is the name of this podcast, at gmail.com. And you can follow me, Tess, on Twitter at Pocky Slice. That is Pocky, like the delicious Japanese snack. Slice as in slices of Nora. Rest in peace. <laughs> grim. This show is fucking grim. And the good news is, uh, we're in the end game now, to quote Benedict Cumberbatch. So next time, join us for the end of Fate the Winx Saga Season 1. Episode 6, A Fanatic Heart. After we finish this, and I promise, after we finish Fate, we will wait a fortnight or until work is slow enough for me to do my notes on the uh, TV show, and we will start Season 2. Get back to happy, happy, joy, joy. We'll get back to the cartoon where things are not nearly as heavy. I miss Tecna and Flora. (gasps) And we'll get to meet Cartoon Aisha. So, until then, meeting adjourned. Open your eyes, open your mind. We are the Winks. Winks, if your hand is holding mine, we can fly through space and time. And together we'll be sure our winners. Winks, with a smile you can enchant. You light up our world. We'll fly the lonely sky uh, yeah. Bloom and Sky are in the middle of a hedge mage. Fuss! I knew I was gonna mess that up! No, I'm a hedge mage. <laughs>